You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. Coming up, adventure, tragedy, the power of a friendship in Peter Heller's new novel. But first, the political junkie Ken Rudin is here for the latest edition of What a Week It Was. Welcome back, Ken. I, I could start oh. every conversation we have with "What a week it was, Ken!" It felt yeah, like three the, weeks. Yeah, but this one is even yeah. more surreal yeah. than any other week I could think of. Okay, so except for the previous week. So follow along here, Ken. I was thinking because we're going to be having a conversation with a novel about friendship. I was thinking that in Michael Cohen's testimony last week, and and continues behind closed doors, we saw. On a Shakespearean level, what happens when a friendship goes horribly wrong, didn't we? I mean, that was a very, for a while, a pretty close friendship between and, and, and Donald that's true Trump with his and, current yeah. exactly, and that's true with his current best friend Kim Jong Un. But yeah. we'll talk about uh. that in a second. But, <laughs> yeah. but watching Michael Cohen, I mean, it was. I mean, did did I sit through seven and a half hours? I certainly did. Wow. <laughs> and I watched it. And, it well, it was, one, I'm lonely and I have nothing to do. <laughs> but two, more importantly, I mean, it was just something to watch. Absolutely Shakespearean some, uh, betrayal, uh, you know, love misplaced. And while the Republicans, of course, said that, you know, this guy is a convicted liar, and he is a convicted liar, and and but I think... I think everything I felt watching Michael Cohen, it felt like it came from the heart. It came mm. with a lot of regret, mostly for his own his own behavior in the past. And there's nothing sympathetic about Michael Cohen. He was a ruthless. I know a lot of people who have been called out by him on the phones, threatening legal action, threatening something uh, bad to happen if they continue to disparage Donald Trump. So he's not a sympathetic guy, but I thought there was a lot of sympathy on uh, uh, last week's hearing. I, I was wondering if you read John Dean's op-ed in The Times, given your did. affinity did. for the Nixon administration. You did. Okay. Uh, wait, wait. You said that we drink. <laughs> That's right. Nixon. Uh, so here's <laughs> for listeners who might have missed this. Here's a bit of what John Dean wrote. Mr. Cohn should understand that if Mr. Trump is removed from office or defeated in 2020, in part because of his testimony, he will be reminded of it for the rest of his life. He will be blamed by Republicans, but appreciated by Democrats. If he achieves anything short of discovering the cure for cancer, he will always live in this pigeonhole. How do I know this? I'm still dealing with it. It's some thoughts about what John Dean's saying there, Ken. Well, well, first of all, if Donald Trump is defeated in 2020, I'm sure that what, what Michael Cohen said last Wednesday will be a long forgotten memory because there will be so many other things that are coming out. And we see so many more con- uh, congressional uh, committees, including uh, House Judiciary under Jerry Nadler, uh, uh, financial services intelligence committees we have no idea what they have and what they're looking for so but the thing is look yes john dean was seen as a judas who betrayed president president nixon but the drink but the fact is is that michael cohn spent 10 years i mean i think it's much more dramatic listening to cohn talk about trump than it was dean talking about nixon do you dean was not 
Well, well, I mean, talking about what he knew about the presidency, yes. But of course, when Dean was testifying, I don't think we even knew about the tapes back then. So we just it was just his word against them. But the fact is, this is far more than just collusion. It's just every aspect of his life, his professional, his business life, his relationship with 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 everybody, uh, business associates, political associates. I thought what Cohn had to say was just. I mean, I don't think it's anything that we didn't know, but to hear the the, the enormity of hearing all mm-hmm. of it at once was just pretty overpowering, I thought. Hey, Ken Rudin with us. If you have questions about Michael Cohn's testimony or 2020 candidates, we have a brand new one in the race as of this morning, 651-227-6000, And you can get to me on Twitter at Carrie NPR. By the way, Ken, I bet you knew this, but I didn't. I didn't realize that it was 14 months after John Dean's testimony that Nixon finally left the White House. You know, I guess I have a tendency to just think the dominoes began to fall and that was the end of it. Oh, no. You know, I've been saying that for the longest time. Everybody says, well, how long is this uh, Mueller investigation going to go on? <laughs> right. And I said, wait a second. The break in in the Democratic National Committee was June of 72. Dean didn't testify until the summer of 73. The the uh, the uh, October, the the uh, Saturday Night Massacre wasn't until October of 73. Wow. The uh, House Judiciary Committee wasn't until or, or, uh, the summer, June and July of 74. And then Nixon resigned in August. So that from start to finish, it was two years. And gee, lo and behold, it's about two years right now. Hey, by the way, why did why is Washington so convinced that the Mueller and uh, the Mueller, re- Mueller report is close to finished and and ready to be reported to whoever it goes to next? I mean, I don't see any sign. I, I don't understand why everybody's so convinced that it's well, done. I, 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 that's a great question, because when the acting attorney general said, about maybe three weeks ago, uh, Mueller was about to finish up, and Mueller said, "I don't, I don't know about right. finishing up. Right. He has other investigations." The only indication people seem to have is one that Rod Rosenstein said he will be leaving in mid-March, and one seems to think that um, maybe, maybe that's an indication that Mueller is wrapping up. But no, I mean, and then I keep, I hear you know people like Pete Williams on NBC or. Or, or Pierre Thomas on ABC yeah. saying, according to Justice Department sources, we, we are led to believe that it may be over soon. But, <laughs> but what, I, what I respect the most about Mueller is that there has not been leaks. There's I know. Not been, it's incredible, you know, isn't so, it? And, and, and even, even the Newt Gingriches of the world, who when Mueller was first appointed, said that Mueller has a high, great reputation for honesty and so I think I think he's you know he's showing that. So look, you know, whenever it happens, it's just like waiting for Joe Biden to announce. It'll be any second now, any second now. You know, in, in five years from now, he's oh, like, well, I'm not sure yet. I'm not I just, sure. I just read Dan Balls from the Washington Post's uh, article about that, and he nails it just as you're talking about. Like, is this going to happen or what? Uh, a call here for you. <laughs> I'm not Ken. convinced it happens. I know. You know I know. Call here for you from Paul in St. Paul. Hi, Paul. What do you want to know from Ken? Um, Hi. Um, Well, I thought one of the most disturbing things that uh, Michael Cohen said was that uh, if Trump loses the election in 2020, there will not be a peaceful transition. And I guess, I mean, I I wouldn't put it past Donald Trump to start a war Hmm. to, to retain power. 
But I would like to know what Ken uh, How'd thinks you interpret about Cohen's that, Ken? comments. Yeah. Oh, my. Well, I heard that, too, and I winced when I heard that, too. And, you know, there was another article in the paper over the last couple of days about an impending or a possible civil war in this country. Donald Trump has, and that's a good question, Paul, but, but Donald Trump has indicated that if he's removed by office by this crooked system, you know, this uh, by, by Mueller and an impeachment and things like that, his supporters will not react quietly. And I think there's truth to that. Now, if Trump does leave office after 2020 by either the fact that he doesn't run again, which is not likely, or the fact that he's defeated, which is possible, though not likely either, you wonder if his supporters will accept it. I, I mean, I even thought that if Trump had lost to Hillary Clinton, there would be talks about fixed election, then crooked elections. Oh, yeah. And they would they wouldn't accept the, the, the result. Remember, Trump was asked during the campaign if he lost, would he accept the results? And he says, well, he says, he says, I accept the results depending on what happened, you know, <laughs> depending on who won. So, I, you know. I mean, I'm Suddenly not the say system yes. was unrigged because Donald right, Trump right, won. Exactly. Uh, right. Ken, um, this does not sound like somebody who isn't all in on 2020. This is the president at CPAC over the weekend. So they don't have anything with Russia. There's no collusion. So now they go and morph into let's inspect every deal he's ever done. We're going to go into his finances. We're going to check his deals. We're going to check. These people are sick. I saw a little shifty shift yesterday. No, it's the first time he went into a meeting and he said, we're going to look into his finance. I said, where did that come from? He always talked about Russia. Collusion with Russia. The collusion delusion. He's talking about Adam Schiff, who heads up one of the investigative committees. Right. <laughs> yes, he's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, and at least he called them Schiff. Last time he called them something more obscene that we can't say oh. on the radio. I was hoping you would play all two hours <laughs> of Trump's uh, speech at CPAC. Because two from the time hours, and we aren't the... exaggerating. It was, <laughs> no, two, it was two hours. Oh, oh this. Oh, wait, wait, there was something I just read, which was so delicious. They say it was the, not only was it the longest speech ever given by a president, but it was longer than William Henry Harrison's uh, inaugural <laughs> address in 1841. <laughs> that was 8,445 words. Are you making that up? And we know what up, happened to William Ken? Henry Harrison. No, I'm not You're, making that up. Really? <laughs> I love this. Oh, that's so no, I, don't, I don't make up clever things, <laughs> as you know. Yeah. So you want to say anything else about the president at CPAC, or should we take a call? Well, it, it was just—I mean, all—it was—it was a—it was, was his greatest hits. He he was spurned by Cohen. He was Cohen. He was spurned by uh, Kim in in Hanoi, uh, of course, which he blamed the Democrats for, and he blamed Michael Cohen's testimony for. And then he comes back and gets that love. So you know, for all the people who say this was the worst week in Trump's presidency, well. All you have to do is come back to CPAC and, and you'll you get got that it. love that he did have. Yeah. Call for you from Bill in River Falls. Hi, Bill. Hi. Good morning, Carrie. Quick question. Just uh, when is enough of enough for the Republicans? I know you just brought up CPAC, but I'm appalled, particularly of Mitch McConnell and Republican leadership, turning a blind eye to what is effectively a mob boss that we've elected. And, and I'm just waiting for the wall to break because this guy is dirty mob boss. So in your opinion, when is enough enough? And and the Mitch McConnell part of that's an an interesting question. There's some real political strategy going on there, right? Compromising going on with McConnell, it seems. 
Well, some people say that McConnell sold his soul because for the longest time, and we said this a long time, for the longest time, uh, according to reports, Mitch McConnell went to the president over and over again and said, please do not go past beyond Congress. Don't bypass Congress for these emergency powers to get the money to build the wall. He said, please don't do it. The moment Trump said, I'm going to do it, it was Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor saying, Trump is doing it. I'm backing him all the way. And so so I guess, look, part of it is the fact that he doesn't want well, first of all, Mitch McConnell is up for re-election next year. Not that I, I well, who knows what's going to happen. But the last thing he wants is, is a right-wing challenge in the primary because he's not sufficiently pro-Trump. But here's a perfect example. I mean, I mean, the Senate is going to vote by the end, the middle of March, on that emergency powers. Mm-hmm. We've got indication over the, the over the weekend that Rand Paul, yeah. uh, Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky always threatens to vote against Trump. I mean, he was going to vote against Mike Pompeo for Secretary of State until he didn't. But this time, if he votes he, against... He seems pretty definitive this time. He does. He does this time. And again, given the fact that there are three other Republicans, Susan Collins, Tom Tillis, and Lisa Murkowski, who's going to vote no, and they may be more as well, maybe Lamar Alexander, if he votes no, then the Senate will join the House in voting down the president's bid for these emergency powers. Yes, Trump will veto the measure. Yes, Congress will not override the veto. They don't have the two-thirds votes. But it will be, I mean, talking, I mean, in answer to Bill's question about when the Republicans stand up, it'll be very interesting to see which Republicans, only 13 Republicans in the House voted to, to, to block Trump on that emergency uh, uh, action. Let's see how many Republicans in the Senate uh, vote against it as well. <laughs> hey, Ken, I, I don't want to miss the new entry into the 2020 race, John Hickenlooper today, the former governor of Wait, Colorado. Wait, you made that up. There's nobody. You and, made that up. They, they, and, they and Jay Inslee, and, another right. governor. I, I mean, this is going to be like a cast of thousands. This is going to be well, so interesting and unruly and... I hope really dynamic. Yeah, I really uh, the exchange of ideas between these Democrats. I really want there's there's lots of time to dig into that. It's going to be interesting to follow. What do you think? That's a that's a great that's a you should do a full show on that full hour on that, because this is we always talk about the battle going in for the soul of the Republican Party. Uh, Somebody like John Hickenlooper and Jay Inslee, but especially Hickenlooper, who has a reputation of working with Republicans. He was very, very popular, but he's a moderate. He's not whatever you think of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. John Hickenlooper is not her. So there is a battle going on within the Democratic Party. He calls himself a radical moderate, I I think, (laughs) which which in this whole like just exactly what you're saying in the whole spectrum of Democrats. It's going to be very interesting to see how he appeals in the, in the primary you, well, season. That's the, well, that's the question. Do you want to appeal to the Democrats' heart right. or do you want to beat Trump? And that may be exclu- uh, mutually exclusive. Yeah. Ken, good to chat. Talk to you next Monday. Thanks, Gary. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to the discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at CarrieNPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.